Great job. You know, uh, those were all traditional hymns, and of course, uh, uh, a lot of times in today's churches, you, you don't get to hear the traditional hymns, but that's perfect for what we're going to be talking about uh, in our message today. Uh, it's, uh, I'm so glad you kind of picked, uh, picked those. Uh, personally, I love the traditional hymns. I know some people like some uh, contemporary, some a mixture. I love some of the contemporary ones, too. I think I grew to love them because I was a child of the <clears throat> 70s and 80s when contemporary Christian music was really getting started. And then all the conference work I've done for the last 20, 25 years, you know, a lot of the bigger conferences, of course, you don't get to hear these great hymns. You hear some of the more contemporary stuff, and some of it's great. I mean, I really, it, it speaks to your heart and so forth. But uh, hearing these old hymns this morning kind of sets me in the right mood for what we're going to talk about uh, in our continuing study of the book of Acts. Um, you know, as a kid, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and uh, I don't know if I was like most Christian young people. I was saved as a young boy, so I grew up most of my childhood as a Christian. But I just loved sitting there in church, singing those hymns, listening to the Word. I, I really looked forward to it. And it, and it just seems like uh, these days we've lost some of that. You know, I don't know what it is, but um, I've call, I'm calling this In Search of Church. And one of the most common questions I get, at least once or twice a week, by email or the 1-800 number at Not By Works, people will call and say, do you know of a solid Bible teaching church in such and such an area? And most of the time I don't. Uh, sometimes I do because we've traveled enough that I can say, yeah, I remember speaking at this church. You might try them. But, uh, but it's a big country, and people are calling from all over. People say, do you know of a church that's preaching a clear, accurate gospel message in my area? Do you know of a church that emphasizes Bible prophecy or at least talks about it from, from time to time? Um, you remember a few months ago when David Fiorazzo was here, and he and I were talking in that group discussion, uh, about about this very issue, that there just seems to be a dearth of b solid Bible teaching uh, churches. Now, I don't mean to paint with too broad of a brush. I don't want to be one of those that says, you know, everybody else out there is apostate and doing it terrible. We're the only ones doing it right. There are a lot of great churches. I, I get that, and we want to be gracious. But it just seems like so many churches today uh, are shunning end times teaching. They're cowering to the government. They're not accurate and clear on the gospel. They're not rooted in you know, the Word of God, and, and so, you know, when we go back and look at the, the early church, we just see a, a gulf between what it was like then and what it has become. And this really shouldn't be surprising uh, because it's prophesied that in the last days apostasy will come. First Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, or 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will turn their ears away uh, from the truth. And so this really shouldn't be too big of a surprise, but you know, I think that's why it's been so refreshing, at least for me, to take this journey back 2,000 years ago to the early days of the church and, and see a group of people that were on fire and bold and committed to sound doctrine. Uh, as I was reminded of this week, the church is not a building or a pastor, or any of the things that people are looking for today. You know, people will say, well, I don't want to go there. I don't like the music, or I don't, you know, I don't like the preaching, or those chairs are too uncomfortable, or no, seriously, that's, that, I've heard that one. I mean, uh, I remember years ago, I was uh, serving in academics in Houston, and 
also had planted a church with a student and a big mega church, I won't mention the name, but you'd know it, they moved into our very neighborhood and planted a, a satellite campus, you know, a franchise. They start, churches started franchising, as you know. Uh, there's big money in churches. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, uh, and they met in the theater, the AMC theater down the road from us. And uh, they put up billboards all over town. I happen to know how much billboards in Houston, Texas cost because as the director of baccalaureate programs at the college I was serving at, uh, we paid for a six-month contract to advertise our school, and it was uh, $5,000 a month just for the, for the billboard. But anyway, uh, they put up billboards all over town, and their, their catchphrase was, same experience, comfier seats. Those four words. In other words, you know, don't, you don't have to drive so far to go downtown to the big mothership. You can just come right here to this theater, and by the way, you'll have the same experience because we're going to live stream and pipe in our preacher, but your seats will be more comfortable. And that's what church has become, or people say, I don't like the children's ministry, I wish they had a better children's ministry, or whatever. I think maybe the reason finding a real church is so difficult is because we have the wrong idea about church. See, the church is not a building or a pastor, it's a body. And we sure saw that this week as our body came together when I was kind of not able to be around here. So take your Bibles and... Turn to Acts chapter 9 as we continue our walk uh, through, the, uh, through the early church. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got a stack of them out in the lobby, brand new. Feel free to pick one up. That's our gift to you. Um, but the church is a body. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, just to kind of give you a couple more preliminary verses, and then we'll dive into the text. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body so also is Christ and later on he says for in fact the body is not one member but many and now you are the body of Christ remember this chapter 12 in 1st Corinthians is where Paul goes to great lengths to describe how each member is unique but we need everyone everyone has their own gifts and strengths but we're all one a body Colossians Paul puts it this way he Jesus is the head of the body the church so there we see it explicitly stated that the church is a body. Church is a body. Well, as we continue our journey through Acts, we come to a fascinating encounter in chapter 9, which is where we left off, um, between two members of that body, the early church. Saul, who becomes Paul, as we know, and a man named Ananias. Now, these two men epitomize the nature and essence of the church. They represent, I believe, what's missing in the church today. So the context of our passage this morning is the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He met the Lord Jesus. He's blinded, and he's told to go meet this man named Ananias. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I had lots of heroes. You know, most of them were sports figures. Okay, all of them were sports figures. But uh, I, it was heroes like Roger Staubach and Tony Dorsett and Drew Pearson. And of course, as I grew older and more mature, I gained more perspective in my life heroes, and they changed to more substantive and meaningful qualities like Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin. <laughs> and now, of course, today it's, you know, Dak and Zeke. But anyway, in Acts chapter 9, Paul and Ananias stand out as real heroes. I think we need more Pauls and Ananiases in the church today. 
Uh, that's what I'm searching for. As we scan the landscape of Christianity, it's, it's fair to ask, where are the heroes for Christ? The vast majority of popular evangelical personalities that, that, that people are reading or watching on the Internet bear little resemblance to the Christian heroes of the first century. So historically, the year is 35 AD, specifically the summer, two years after the resurrection of our Lord. Things are really beginning to heat up. Saul's conversion understandably turned a lot of heads uh, and it, it encouraged and emboldened and motivated early Christians more than anything since the resurrection of Christ had. So let's take a look at, at verses 10 to 35. I want to just walk through it for a bit and then I want to give you just four points uh, this morning. Acts chapter 9. So if you want to turn with me, we'll kind of pick up the context a little bit in uh, the first nine verses. We, we want to get Paul saved again. Um, so if you remember in verses 3 to 9, he's journeying to Damascus, uh, a bright light shines, he falls down, and he hears the Lord say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, uh, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he says, Lord, what do you want to do with me? I mean, you could imagine what was going through Saul's mind at that moment. Um, but he, the Lord said, arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. He was three days and three uh, three, three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So now we pick it up in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Straight Street is still one of the main thoroughfares going east to west through Damascus to this day. And Saul, like most Pharisees, was a man of prayer, and he continued to give prayer a priority even after his conversion. We see that throughout Acts and in his writings. Luke also recorded, by the way, in his gospel that Jesus was a great man of prayer. And so the Lord prepared both Ananias and Saul with revelations of himself so that they would have no doubt about his personal uh, dealings with them. And then, uh, by the way, this Ananias, we've heard that name before, haven't we? Remember back in chapter 5, Ananias comes up? How do we know this is not the same Ananias from chapter 5? Because he's dead, right. Okay, just making sure you're tracking with me. That's right. Uh, different Ananias. So now we pick it up in verse 13. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. This is the first time in Luke, that, I mean in uh, Acts, written by Luke, that Luke uses the name saints to refer to believers. But Ananias is, uh, is saying, uh, respectfully, Lord, uh, do you know who this guy is? And he goes on, and here, meaning in Damascus, where they were, here he's been given authority, remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. In other words, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Remember we said the early believers had fled Jerusalem outside the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish government, if you will. And uh, so Saul went and got special permission to go outside that region and haul them back. And uh, that's what he's talking about here. So he's kind of telling the Lord. So Ananias was skeptical, even afraid, because of course his expectations of Saul 
were not God's expectations. You ever find yourself in that situation? I do all the time. That my anxieties, my fears are based on my expectations and God is doing something entirely different. And as I was preparing for this message, I came across a great quote here. Listen to this. The Lord's work is revealed through events that overthrow human expectations. Humans calculate the future on the basis of their normal experience. These calculations leave them unprepared for the appearance of the overruler. Don't you love that term for God? He's the overruler who negates human plans and works the unexpected. I think we need to remember more often that the God we serve is the overruler. That he, nothing's going to confound him. No matter what your circumstance, no matter what, how bleak it might look, God's doing something. Let's let him work. Let's let him work. But if we go back to uh, the text, he, uh, God says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, don't you love that phrase, Brother Saul? I mean, imagine, here's Ananias. First time he meets Saul, the one who's been murdering, bludgeoning, torturing Christians, dragging them from their homes. And through Christ, he's able to put his arm around him and say, Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. You ought to underline verse 20. As far as the book of Acts, this is the only mention of someone proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. But we see this again and again throughout Paul's epistles and throughout the whole teaching of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To trust in Jesus is not just to trust in any man to forgive your sin and give you the, holy life, the gift of eternal life. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God's one and only Son who took your penalty on the cross, paid your sin debt, defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose the third day, and is the only one with the power to give life. So anybody that denies the deity of Christ is believing in a different Jesus. right? So immediately, uh, something like, uh, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. So the Christ, of course, is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited uh, Messianic hope the Christ, but he's also uh, the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who, were dwelt in, who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. It's amazing how quickly Saul went from persecutor to proclaimer. And he was able to uh, to, I mean, he knew the scriptures better than anybody, and he was able to confound even those who had previously followed his own teaching. So we know from Paul's first letter that he wrote, uh, at least chronologically, Galatians, 
Romans comes first in the Bible, but Galatians was written first, that prior to visiting Jerusalem for the first time as a Christian, he went and spent three years in Arabia. Uh, that period of time probably falls right here between verse 21 and 22 in Acts. And then Luke gives us a summary statement in verse 22 uh, that he increased in strength. Uh, so after his conversion and baptism, Saul needed some time to, to, to decompress, to, to, to have some quiet reflection and communion with God, to, to go back and look at the Old Testament scriptures again and reflect anew on what they really taught because he had been deceived and he had rejected Christ and indeed was murdering and persecuting those who believed in Christ. And you see this again and again uh, in Scripture with men of God whom the Lord uses, that they, they always take time initially to sort of set their hearts and prepare. Moses, Elijah, remember Jesus after his baptism spent 40 days in the wilderness. Of course, that wasn't all a bed of roses. He had a visitor, didn't he? But he was still preparing before he began his Galilean a ministry. But then we see a reversal of fortune here in verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, Paul. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, led him down through the wall in a large basket. Aren't you thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ who can help get you out of a jail? And uh, Saul early on had to uh, rely on that. But persecution, Paul the persecutor becomes the persecuted. Another great quote that I saw was, no one persecutes a man who is ineffective and who obviously doesn't matter. To suffer persecution is to be paid the greatest of compliments because it's the certain proof that men think we really matter. <laughs> if you're not being persecuted, eh, nobody's paying attention. You don't really matter. Paul certainly mattered uh, to these early uh, unbelieving Jews. And then when Saul had come to Jerusalem, verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, I guess so, and did not believe that he was a disciple. So he eventually makes his way to Jerusalem. You know, they didn't have Facebook and you know, social media and texting, and no one had given them advance notice. Word hadn't necessarily trickled all around that Saul had be believed in Jesus and become saved. So he shows up in Jerusalem and you know, I mean, what would you do? Whoa, who, who's this guy, right? Uh, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Don't you love Barnabas? Uh, we, we first were introduced to Barnabas in one of those walk-ons that I talked about earlier in our study through Acts, where Luke introduces a character in a minor way who becomes a big role later. And we were told that he was the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Here he's just living out his name. He, he's encouraging Paul, and he's, he's there for him. Um, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, and, and, but they attempted to kill him. So again, you see this persecution. Um, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So we'll stop there uh, for just a moment. But as we take a look at the developments that followed Saul's conversion with Ananias and, and, and Saul, I want to just 
make note of some characteristics of true Christian heroes. You want to you find the church today? The real church? Look for members of the body that exemplify these traits. That's where the search for church ends. Number one, heroes take risks. If there's one recurring theme that we see again and again from the early church is that they were bold and courageous and willing to risk everything. You know, remember, what was the Lord's response to Ananias when he said, uh, Lord, do you really know who this guy is? The Lord said to him, go. Did Ananias continue to debate the matter? Did he continue to make his case? Did he show hesitation? No. God had a plan from a human perspective, and, and this plan was hard to understand. It was frightening. It was puzzling. But Ananias responded immediately. He, he took the risk, and he obeyed what God said. This bold, risk-taking mentality should characterize the church. But the church has become so soft, so watered down, so controlled, so inseparable from the world after 2,000 years that it's hard to find the church it's hard to find the church but we see this boldness again and again in the early days of the church if you remember the boldness that Peter and John displayed when they were confronted by Jewish leaders after healing the lame man at the beautiful gate remember we talked about that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men they marveled when's the last time the world marveled at the church today now again I don't want to be you know, it's too negative. There are, obviously, the Spirit of God is alive and well. There are great churches, the remnant uh, revival throughout the land. And, and through this last couple of years of medical tyranny, we've seen examples of churches and pastors that have boldly stood up and even been arrested. But it's rare. It's rare. Uh, boldness is, is a Greek word here that means confident and courageous. It's used 30 times in the New Testament. Now Lord, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they will speak. This is the early church praying for Peter and John. So their boldness is connected to the fact that their brothers and sisters in Christ were praying for them to have boldness in the face of continued threats. Not only Peter and John and later Ananias were bold, but Paul himself was filled with all courage. As we just read, Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. Confounded is only used five times in the New Testament. It means to amaze, to bewilder, uh, to confuse. In other words, Paul's arguments were so powerful that the Jews didn't even have an answer. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 19, on his third missionary journey in Ephesus, you know, this is... Now, 20 years later, after three missionary journeys, and he's still speaking boldly, in this case, in Ephesus, for three months in the synagogue, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Boldness was a key, consistent characteristic of the early church. In fact, at the end of Acts, we see they were preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. That's the same word translated boldness 30 times that we saw earlier. With all boldness. But you know what? As we read the early church history, within 30 years or so, by the late 60s, 
the boldness of the church was already starting to wane. The early Jewish Christians were being threatened with martyrdom and other persecution, and many of them were casting away their confidence and abandoning the church, abandoning fellowship with others. That's why earlier in uh, chapter 10 it talks about do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together because many were. And I think we're seeing a repeat of that, only magnified multiple fold today, where people are abandoning the church because the government or whoever else tells them you can't worship. And by the way, I hope we learned something from that experience two years ago because all signs point to another manufactured you know, uptick. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how many believers stop worshiping God in church in obedience to the command of God in, in, in favor of whatever the government tells them they have to do. But Hebrews reminds us, don't cast away your confidence because it has great reward. So heroes take risks. What risks are you taking for the cause of Christ? If you can't think of any, then, you know, before you search for the church, you need to look in the mirror. You've got to be the church before you can search for the church and find the church. You know, when I look at the boldness of these early Christians and I compare it to my weak faith and timidity when it comes to enduring hardship or persecution or pain, I'm embarrassed, honestly. You know, I mean, this past week I felt like a big baby. I mean, I was in pain, but there is so much greater suffering going on in this world. And I, I was more angry than I was in pain. I mean, I was in pain, but I was angry that, you know, I needed to get back on my feet, needed to get going, needed to do the next thing, you know, and couldn't do it. And then I'm sitting there feeling guilty because I'm thinking about all the brothers and sisters that are suffering far, far worse. I mean, there are more martyrs today for the cause of Christ than at any other time in human history. And, uh, but heroes take risks. Second thing we need to look for in the search for church is heroes talk about Jesus. I mean, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago in my message entitled Community Outreach. Uh, and I have to be honest, I've grown weary to the point of discouragement of all the Christians these days who will talk about anything and everything but Jesus. They'll talk about community. They'll talk about friendship. They'll talk about issues. They'll talk about morality. They'll talk about politics. They'll talk about religion. They'll talk about Trump. I mean, if people would talk about Jesus more than they talk about Trump, revival would break out. I just don't hear a lot of mention of Jesus. And uh, often when Christians do talk about Jesus, they've so softened and distorted and deconstructed the biblical view of who he is that they're not even talking about the same person. When we read the book of Acts, we see a Christian community that was 100% centered on Christ. Now, it's easy to understand why. They had walked with him. They had talked with him. They were living in the age in which he was crucified and resurrected, the pivotal event of human history, the, the miracle of all miracles. But the early Christians could not care less what others thought about them. They cared only about Jesus, the one who saved them from their sin when he died on the cross and rose again. Here's what Luke tells us about Saul in our text. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Remember the response to Peter and John in the very early weeks after uh, the resurrection? Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John were 
preaching Jesus. That's what began the church on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2. Let all of Israel now know that this Jesus whom you uh, crucified is both Lord and Christ. Paul on his second missionary journey didn't care what people thought of him. Remember this uh, in Athens he's, when he's preaching and they called him a, a, a babbler, literally a seed picker. It's a metaphor for, you know, to imply someone who picks up scraps of knowledge or information here and there and then tries to impress people by babbling on and on. And these, you know, philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics said, oh, you're, you're just some babbler. What do you have to say? They were calling Paul names. Yeah, they, were, they were essentially accusing Paul of being a, an ignorant show-off. And why were they calling him names? Well, Luke tells us he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus. <laughs> that's why they were so riled up, because he was preaching Jesus. And that's what heroes do. Paul said in Romans that that was his goal. Remember, at the end of Romans, he had not visited Rome yet, but he said, I've made him I am to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build another man's foundation, but I want to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, because I want to tell people about Jesus. Number three, heroes fear the Lord. Uh, heroes fear the Lord. We talked about this in our recent study of Proverbs on Wednesday nights. A few weeks ago, we were, we were looking at how to study the book of Proverbs as part of the larger teaching of Scripture. And we spent some time kind of elaborating on the fear of God. And we said the key verse in Proverbs is Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we define fear of God this way. The fear of God does not mean a dread that results in hiding from God. It is rather a recognition of God. If we could drill that into our minds that to fear God means to recognize Him. Fear of God is not fear that He may hurt me, but fear that I may hurt Him. That's the kind of fear that produces holy character and righteous conduct. Recognizing God means taking God into account. This is from our notes in our Wednesday series. Recognizing God means taking God into account, being aware of His reality and presence, making decisions in view of His existence and His revelation, that is, the Word of God. That's what fearing God means. The church today needs more members of the body who take God into account as they're going through life. Heroes fear the Lord. We saw that in verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The early church was marked by a profound, tangible fear of the Lord from its very inception. Remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, then fear came upon every soul. Acts chapter 5, so great fear came upon all the church. Later on in Acts 5, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You know why? Because they feared the Lord. All right. Going back to you know, this late 60s, 30 years later, and that Hebrews, which may have been written by Paul, but gives us great exhortation in the midst of suffering. The writer says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we talked about that kingdom in the first hour this morning, didn't we? Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Where is the fear of God in the church today? 
Could it be that we are afraid to do heroic things because we've lost our fear of God? Maybe we're more afraid of man than God. But finally, heroes encourage others. Heroes encourage others. This is where the, the real face of the church shines, I think. Again, back to verse 31. All the churches were edified and had peace. What does it mean to edify someone? It's the Greek word orkatameo. It means it's used 39 times in the New Testament. It literally means to build up. In fact, sometimes it's used in a literal sense. Remember in that uh, parable, uh, in the discipleship parables where Jesus was talking to believers about how to be a fully devoted follower now that you've believed in Christ. And he talked about which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost. That phrase, build a tower, is oikotomeo. It means to build up, to strengthen. So when you build a house, you want it to be strong and well built, right? You don't tell your builder, all right, build me the shoddiest, you know, cheapest piece of junk you can build me. No, you, you, you're concerned. You, you want, I'm assuming, Paul, I mean, I'm not a construction expert, but isn't that generally the idea? You want, when you build something, you, you kind of go in with this idea, I want it to be strong, right? Well, the same thing is true when you're interacting with others. What's your motivation when you're interacting? Are you wanting to build them up? Are you wanting to make them stronger? That's edification. That's what heroes do. That's what the church did. And I think, you know, through the depravity of man and 2,000 years of the curse of sin, we've just gotten so far from that. With petty differences, defensiveness, you know, hurt feelings, pride, selfishness. Often when we interact with others, we have other motivations. Next time you interact with a brother or sister in Christ, think about this analogy of the house. When you go to build a house, your intention is to make it strong. When you go to interact with another brother or sister in Christ, you want to build them up. You want to edify them, not tear them down. A hero wants to make people stronger, not weaker. Heroes encourage others. If more believers would employ just this one characteristic of the true church, I think it would change the world overnight. Because encouragement is what leads to boldness, a willingness to take risks, confidence when talking about Jesus. I can remember, this just popped into my mind, but when I was just a young preacher, my first full-time church, I was 25 years old before we had any kids, and there was a just a evil man in, in the, this church that just had given every preacher, and I was like the 41st preacher of this church that had, that had more preachers than presidents of the United States, founded in the 1840s. But anyway, uh, I, you know, he'd always given every preacher a rough time, just a hateful man. And in one particular service, uh, the guy got up and just criticized me for something just unfairly and just really hateful. And a wise old man behind me leaned forward before I was to get up whispered in my ear, don't listen to a word he said, just be strong. I'll never forget that. And that little timely word just encouraged me. And I got up, I don't think I probably handled it as well as I could have, but I was young, but I, I was emboldened. I was, okay, someone's on my side. Not everybody is agreeing with what this guy just said. Right? I can recall many times when I was emboldened, and you can too, I'm sure, by a timely text or a timely email or a word of encouragement. We need each other. Paul said, using the same word, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. 1 Thessalonians 5, one of his earlier epistles. Um, 
Matter of fact, it's his second epistle. Galatians, first and second Thessalonians, then first and second Corinthians and Romans. So that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Are you encouraging others? So where's the church? Well, you find the heroes, you'll find the church. Heroes take risks, they talk about Jesus, they fear the Lord, and they encourage others. So I'm so proud of Plum Creek Chapel. You know, this church is built on 20 years of solid commitment to the infallible and errant word of God. Next week, our founding pastor, John Schrag, will be sharing the message while I'm at my son's wedding. Our son Morgan's getting married uh, next week to a wonderful Christian young lady who graduated from the same college he's graduating from. And John's going to bring the message later this year in September. We're going to celebrate our 20th anniversary as a church. And I'm proud of our church. Uh, we're not perfect. No church is. Um, but we, we're doing our best to follow the biblical model of the book of Acts. And I think we, we do take risks. I think we certainly talk about the Lord. We fear the Lord as best we can, and we encourage one another. But let's, let's keep it up. So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Uh, I would simply put it this way. Be a hero. Not by the world standards, but by the Bible standards. The church needs more heroes that exemplify the kind of behavior we see uh, here in Acts chapter 9. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you for this uh, really amazing encounter between uh, Ananias and Saul and how each of these men in their own way shared, showed incredible boldness and really serve as a perfect example of what makes up the church. And Lord, I pray that we might learn from what we observe here and what we see in other passages of scriptures about what it really means to be the church today. Lord, I pray if there's one within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, that today, in simple childlike faith, they would trust in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to pay our penalty for sin and is the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life. And Lord, for those who already know him, I just pray that the study of your word today would, would strengthen us, encourage us, and that we would leave here knowing and saying and recognizing it was good to be in the house of the Lord today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand Let's together. Everybody rise and we'll sing one more song to the Lord.